you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed podcast brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation and a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. We bring you community discourse about the amazing organizations and people who come together to help make Edmonton strong. We share stories from spaces where endowments and communities intersect. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This month, we're posting a new episode every week. We wanted to see what it felt like and to find out what you think of the idea. That's right. We've created a listener survey to get your thoughts on the show. Just head over to the wellendowedpodcast.com, click on the listener survey button, and tell us what you think. This week, we hear from Arlene Dickinson about her journey as an entrepreneur and investor. And we chat with Emrita Mishra about what it means to be an audible minority. And we find out how the McEwen University Social Innovation Institute is using the Vital Signs Report to inspire social initiatives. Hint, it involves meeting strangers and winning funds. So let's get started. Arlene Dickinson has become one of Canada's most recognizable entrepreneurs. She has been in many of our living rooms through the CBC series Dragon's Den, The Big Decision, and Under New Management. She's an author, philanthropist, angel investor, mother, and grandmother. Arlene will be coming to Edmonton on September 19th as part of the Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speaker Series. And she joined us over the phone to share a bit about how she became the entrepreneur and investor we know her as today. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast, Arlene. Thanks for having me. So you'll be visiting Edmonton on September 19th as part of Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speaker Series. Uh, Maybe we'll just start by getting you to tell us a little bit about what you'll be covering in your talk. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about my story and kind of where I've come from, because I think people are always a bit surprised of, you know, that you you see somebody on TV and you think they must have been born with some sort of a special and privileged kind of lifestyle. And and that's actually quite not the truth for me. I mean, I came from a very relatively uh, poor background and came as immigrants to the country and actually landed uh, in Edmonton, came to Edmonton. And Edmonton was the city that we uh, first lived in when we came to this country. So a little bit of background about my youth and kind of what I went through as an adult and learning about myself and learning about being an entrepreneur and hopefully being able to share some of the lessons that I learned potentially the hard way so that other people don't make the same mistakes I did, but also just to share some of the things about how important um, education, learning, understanding yourself and and understanding what you need from the life that you're given and, and how to live it fully. Absolutely. So you mentioned that uh, you don't come from a privileged background. So I take it to mean that maybe investing uh, in the stock market or entrepreneurship wasn't something that was part of maybe your younger life. Uh, When did you first start getting interested in investing? I mean, I would say probably when I I was working full time and I met a couple of people that were investing in the market and they took me into the wing and told me a, a few things, and I dabbled at it, but I didn't have a lot of extra money. I mean, at, at my early days of young adulthood, I didn't have any money, so it wasn't until I was really working and having some cash that I started to think about it. Right, and so when did you make your first sort of investment in the stock market? Uh, it would have been in my probably early 30s. I, I had bought a few stocks right around that time of you know, like, but again, really small plays, like, you know, we're talking hundreds of dollars sort of thing. But it was a small plays. And then 
And then I started, when I started uh, Venture and was working there and running that company, I invested in my first kind of entrepreneur by investing in one of my team that was starting a company. So that was really my first angel investment that I made. Okay. And, Can you tell us a little uh, bit that, about that? Yeah, sure. One of the fellows that worked for me had lived in Thailand for a number of years and wanted to go back to Thailand to start a travel adventure company. And he needed a small loan to get going. And I really had a ton of time for this individual. He was hardworking and very committed and had a, a great vision for what he wanted to do. So I, I lent him the cash to do that. And he paid me back, as he said he would. And he's got on to be there for now. Gosh, that's got to be quite a few years ago. And he's been very successful. And he went on to build a very successful and thriving business in Thailand as a travel adventure company. So it was a, it turned out very well for, for me, for him. And it was my first kind of foray into understanding how you can support other people in their dream and also make it into something that can be viable for both of you as a win-win. So is it correct to say that was sort of the spark that maybe uh, where you got your taste for investing in entrepreneurs? Yeah, it was certainly the start of it. It was certainly the start of it. I mean, my company was working with a lot of entrepreneurs, so I had been helping from a marketing sense work and support entrepreneurs, but not from an investment side. So yeah, I would say that that was definitely one of the early times where I really started to get a, a flavor for it and an appreciation for the support that entrepreneurs need. And it was from there, I just went on. Now, before investing in uh, your first entrepreneur, what was your portfolio looking like? Was it particularly heavy, maybe in a certain sector at the time? No, as I said, I wouldn't have actually even called it a portfolio. Okay. <laughs> I think characterizing it as a portfolio might be taking it a bit too far. It was pretty basic. But as I said, I did have a friend who was into, you know, I, I think one of the first things I ever bought was IBM. And, you know, it was definitely safer stock in the energy business at the time, going up from Alberta. And so it was a couple small little things, but I don't know I would characterize it as a portfolio. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so maybe you can walk us through a little bit of your career after investing in your first uh, entrepreneur there with the travel adventure company. Um, how did things progress uh, from there? Uh, you know, from there, I just started working harder and I was becoming more successful uh, in terms of being able to at least have a little bit more cash to be able to invest. And I started to play a little bit more in the stock market, but then I just, you know, had a tendency to kind of revert back to investing in two things. I mean, first of all, I invested in myself. I think that's a really important lesson for people who don't understand the value of investing in yourself. And as an entrepreneur, it's very important that you put your capital to work against your most important asset, which is your time and energy. And so for me, that was a, a lesson I learned that I had to make sure I was investing any free capital I did have in building my business. So right, that right. was really the first place. And then, of course, you also need to diversify your portfolio. So I was thinking about what else I could invest in and started to invest in other entrepreneurs and in the public markets and found that I had a, a, a bigger passion, I'd say, for the private sector. Doesn't mean that I didn't also invest in the public sector. I did. But I was just kind of learning as I went and then just became more and more involved in it and more engaged in it and really started to understand the value of thinking about uh, how I wanted my, at that time it was turning into a portfolio, and how I wanted that to, to look. And then it eventually evolved into me focusing all of my time and energy and, and money and investment on the food and health sectors in Canada. And I find that when you focus that way, it, it, it actually helps you get expertise and, and an understanding of the space that helps you make wiser decisions in terms of investment. 
So it was, it was, it's been an evolution. It, it started with one person. It's then, you know, me learning more about the markets and investing more as I could invest more, investing in myself, of course, along the way, and, and then eventually evolving that from the show into a more of a focus on food and beverage and health and wellness, consumer goods companies, and then building out a fund and an accelerator in that space. So it's been a journey for me. It's been a really, a truly a lifelong journey of learning how to invest my money, how to think about it, how to deploy it in a way that is not full of risks. Always you have risk when you invest, but thinking about it hopefully more strategically, and uh, it's gone from there. Yeah, well, so when you're looking into to invest in either a company or a, a product, what are you looking for when someone comes in and pitches you? You know, I've always said that there's three very important things that uh, I look for. I look for characteristics of the individual first and foremost, and so those characteristics are somebody that I feel is being very genuine and authentic with me. So somebody who I believe is showing up as themselves and is unafraid to discuss their mistakes, talk about what they feel they need, and is vulnerable in that. I then look for somebody who is very honest because you know honesty is critical to forming a partnership and to having trust that you require in order to build a long-term relationship with the individual. And then the last thing I look for is win-win. You know, somebody who understands that if they win, I'll win, and if I win, they win, and that we have to work that out together to find a way that each of us could go down the journey and feel that we have both won because you'd never want a relationship where it's a win-lose. So those are the three things I look for. And, you know, I mean, the product and the, the idea the service offering, whatever it is they're, they're pitching, of course that's important, but it's never going to be more important than the individual, never. Uh, so it's safe to say that you invest in people over product or service? 100%. 100%. Uh, have you ever come across a situation where the product is great, but the person maybe doesn't inspire uh, enough confidence for you to invest in their idea? Is that common? It's pretty common, more common than you might suspect it to be. You know, and it's it's generally because somebody's in love with the idea and they can't see past their passion for it to kind of look at it as, as objectively as they might need to, or simply because they're just not able to get past themselves. You know, it's simply because you have a great idea doesn't make you a great entrepreneur. And a true entrepreneur understands how to build a business and scale it and, and figures out when they need support and what their own gaps are. And Sometimes people, because they invent something, they think that makes them an entrepreneur, and they are very different things. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're looking at a business or a company, how does their corporate social responsibility initiatives enter into your, the equation uh, when you're uh, making a decision whether to invest or not? Decades ago, CSR was something that a lot of companies bolted on. They would start their business, they would be successful, and then they would start to consider how they could give back to the community or to do something that was meaningful in terms of a relationship with what their organization could do for social enterprise or social good. Today's entrepreneur is quite different. Today's entrepreneur starts almost always with a notion that an element of their business has to be socially responsible. And so they devise and think about ways to not just make profit, but how can they take some of that profit and turn it back into something that gives back. And it's, it's a very fundamental thing to the structure of business today. So, if a company comes to me today and hasn't got that kind of approach, 
I usually start to question why they don't, because I think today's younger entrepreneurs in particular are so in tune with the notion of the responsibility we have to our community, to you know the people around us, to education, whatever the cause is. And they, they bake it into their business plans, where I say before it might have been more bolted on, today it's baked in. And uh, are there any companies that you particularly find their CSR approach unique? Again, as I said, I think a lot of people today are thinking about how whatever they want to do to give back is tied to their their business model. And, you know, what is it that they can do that reflects the value of the organization? You know, FYI Doctors is a great example. It's a company I sit on the board of, but I'll, I'll give you them as an example. What they do is they think about how children learn more effectively when they see well. And so, you know, they have a Better Sites, Better Grades program that actually helps you know, kids who don't have access to the right eye care and eyewear to be able to get that so that they can actually learn more effectively. So when you see CSR strategies like that, where they're really tied back to, you know, the fundamental business is eye care and, and uh, eye health, and they found a way to think about how that actually impacts children and youth in terms of learning more effectively so then they become better educated, which in turn helps all of the, you know, the community because now we have better educated children who are happier, who are learning more effectively, who then grow up to be more productive and hopefully socially responsible adults. So I think when you find these things where people really genuinely are thinking about the value of the organization and then finding a CSR model that supports that value, then that's the best it can be, right? Because your your values are aligned with the funding or the, the giving you're doing, and it's reflected in the way you do business. And with your company, do you sort of view where you decide to invest as a bit of a CSR strategy on your part personally? Yeah, I mean, like, I think there's lots of ways to give back, whether it's providing free advice, whether it's it's supporting entrepreneurs in whichever way you possibly can. But for me, it's important that the organizations that we invest in are thinking hard about having CSR embedded into their business model. And can we talk a little bit about women uh, entrepreneurs? Is that a particular area of interest for you to support uh, women who have aspirations to become entrepreneurs and business owners? Through the accelerator and through the fund, I end up having a very unusual statistic. I can tell you that I don't set out specifically to say, oh, I'm, I, I'm going to only find female entrepreneurs. What I set out to find is great entrepreneurs. And in the space I'm in, which is the food and beverage health and wellness sector, there simply is by virtue of the space itself, which is health and nourishing people, there are many female entrepreneurs that are in that space. And we have, I believe with the stats, over 50% of the founders and entrepreneurs that we have invested in are female. And what's interesting about that is it didn't come from saying it had to be. It, It came from looking for the best people. And, you know, I think if you come from no bias as an investor, if you don't have a bias to men or women, if you have a bias to the right entrepreneur and the right idea, you will end up funding a lot of females, (laughs) probably a proportionate amount of females. And the, the issue that we have to address, I believe, is that there is a bias in the venture capital world in particular that... Because women, you know, they they articulate the business model a little bit differently, perhaps. They come at how they build their businesses differently. They challenge themselves differently. I mean, all of these things, not right or wrong, just different. 
And until venture capitalists and investors and banks and financial institutions understand that simply because it's different doesn't make it wrong, if they can just listen to the idea and listen to what the vision is and believe that there are other ways to get at solving problems, they will find themselves investing in women. And so I'm very, I'm very passionate about this because I, I think we have to start with a bias, an unspoken and a, a bit of a deeply rooted bias that says men are better at you know, entrepreneurialism, men are better at business, men are more um, capable. And that's just not true. That's just not true. So that requires listening to pitches with a, a more of an open mind, an open ear, a different thought around, you know, taking uh, risk on people that may not have done it before. Because there are, frankly, a lot of women that are just entering the workforce and entering entrepreneurialism and, and starting their own businesses. And we need to give them an opportunity to be heard. And then we need to support them. Are things getting better uh, for women in the business world? I think there's a yes and no answer to that. I, I believe that in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. Um, you know, if you look at the stats as it relates to board involvement and senior managers being elevated into um, positions of authority and, and power inside of organizations, it doesn't feel like the answer is yes. It feels like we are still kind of in a very... Uh, low percentile of opportunity for females to be able to succeed at either a board level or at a senior executive level inside of corporations. On the other side, when you look at the funding that is going to female entrepreneurs, which is a different point, when you look at women that are out there looking for capital for you know, business girls for capital, for starting companies, for capital, for building, export, or whatever they want to do, there is still a bias. And there is a bias in terms of raising funds in Canada as a venture capitalist. So, you know, I went out and raised a fund, and it was not an easy task for me. And I'm fairly, you know, I I think I I have a, a higher profile than many women would have when they go into the marketplace. So if it was a challenge, you know, to get going for me as a first-time fund manager, can you only imagine how difficult it would be for many women who want to be in the VC side of things? So I'd say it's it's one of these things that we have to focus on, we have to be more aware of. And again, we need banks, financial institutions, anybody who is providing capital to potential fund managers and general partners of funds to stop having a bias towards women and to start investing more in them. Because there's too much empirical data out there that says businesses will do better. Women will perform not just at par, but above par as it relates to their return when they can find somebody to believe in them. And isn't that what we all need? We need somebody to believe in us. So to answer, again, a longer answer to your question is a complex question. Are things getting better in some ways? Yes. Are things improving in some ways? Absolutely not. And so we've got to continue at this, and we've got to come at it from a perspective of meritocracy, but also with an open mind that simply because somebody does something differently or um, has their own unique way of approaching things, that could be true for a man or a woman that we're listening with an open open mind. It also sounds like you're saying there's been enough studies done on this, and it's pretty much time to just start putting money where your mouth is and actually uh, investing uh, in female entrepreneurs. Is, is that accurate to say? 
Yes, we've got to open up the access to capital to females for certain, uh, to female entrepreneurs. And then we've got to be more transparent and more accountable to women on boards and women in boardrooms and trying to, again, uh, increasingly champion women throughout the process, which, by the way, takes strong men. It takes men who understand the value of you know, an individual as opposed to gender of an individual, right? Absolutely. So you also mentioned that it's very powerful to have someone who takes the time to like, invest in you, not just monetarily, but that support uh, emotionally and personally. So I kind of wanted to chat a little bit, uh, maybe for our last question here, a little bit about the Accelerator and your company right now. What is the process when somebody comes into uh, the fold, so to speak, and what are you providing them throughout that relationship? We're just about to launch our sixth cohort group into the Accelerator. So we've been at it not quite three years. In that period of time, we'll have, gee, over 60 companies that have come through the program uh, across the country. And they come in and they get access to programming. So they get some very intense programming that talks to them and teaches them about whether it's financial structuring, marketing, um, legal contracts, whether it's distribution and retail, sales, packaging. So there's an intense amount of workshop development that goes on for these entrepreneurs as they're busy building out their businesses. This is an accelerator, not an incubator. So these companies are already are working and and selling something and we're helping to get them to the next level. They also get access to mentors from across the country who have knowledge and expertise in their specific space. So they have somebody that can work with them and help them as they go through the various challenges of building a business. And then they get access to our sponsor group, which is really a group of very high quality companies from across the country who support in many ways, whether it's through discounted service offerings, um, again, mentorship very specific to their expertise or whether it's just through instructional development. And then they get, uh, at the end of that, they get a demo day where they can pitch their idea and their business to investors, retailers, distributors, and the community at large to get support for the next stage of growth. We, we currently have structured this accelerator in a new way, though. We've added a different twist to it because what we are finding is that these companies have come in and, of course, again, they need access to capital because they're a very early stage. They need growth uh, opportunity. And, and most banks won't touch those companies at the beginning because they're just too early and there's a lot of risk attached to them. Right. So now what we do is we actually provide them with capital. The fund, District Ventures Capital, my fund, actually provides them with $150,000 and in exchange for some equity of their business. And now we partner with them as soon as they come in. So now we're committed. We're, we're committed from a capital perspective, but we're committed all the way through the programming to get them to the next level. And then, you know, we can then determine if we're going to continue to provide more capital or go to the markets to get more capital. But we're giving them that boost right from the beginning with not just programming, but also capital. And it's quite—it's the only one of its kind like this in Canada. Yeah, I was just going to ask if this—if uh, this is a common model, but it actually sounds like it. It sounds pretty obvious in a lot of ways that if you provide <laughs> support every step of the way, the chance for success is going to be just that much greater. It's a much more common model in the technology world. So, right. you know, there are companies around North America that have a model very similar to this for tech companies. There is nothing like this for the food and beverage, health and wellness consumer goods category in the country. 
and we take a lot of pride in the success of it. It's done incredibly well. We've had thousands and thousands of applications for the accelerator, which only points to the you know, pent-up demand for it, right. and we, we continue to fine-tune it. We're very proud of what we're building as an ecosystem to support these companies in our country. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time here, and I was just wondering if there's anything else you'd like to chat about uh, before we let you go. I, I don't really have anything else to add. I, I, I appreciate the platform and the opportunity to talk about things that are really important that we all need to consider, you know, advancement of women, support of female entrepreneurs and in the capital markets, the ability to think about how CSR and corporate social responsibility really does change the shape of communities and nations and how important it is for us to get back. And then, you know, just a chance to talk about my story as an entrepreneur myself. Thank you for that opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for giving up a little bit of your day today. Thanks so much to Arlene Dickinson for sharing her time with us. Arlene will be in Edmonton on September 19th as part of Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speaker Series. Tickets are almost sold out, so hurry over to epl.ca before they're gone. We'll have the link in our show notes. Vital Signs is an annual checkup to measure how Edmonton's community is doing. The full Vital Signs report will be coming out on October 4th. This year, we will also focus on individual issues, vital topics. On September 1st, our vital topic on visible minority women in Edmonton was released. One area that we didn't cover in the report, but is worth finding out more about, is the issue of audible minorities. I spoke to Amrita Mishra. Hello, my name is Amrita Mishra, and I work with the Indo-Canadian Women's Association. To find out what it means to be an audible minority in Canada. Thanks for being part of our Vital Signs Committee. You have been helping us out all along here with all of our vital topics this year, and also will be part of the committee that formulates our full vital signs this year. Our latest vital topic, which is coming out on September 1st, is on visible minority women. I wanted to introduce a topic that you had mentioned at one point that goes hand in hand with this, and that is audible minorities. Can you talk a little bit about what an audible minority is? Thank you for the question. I do not think that there is a very clear-cut definition of it, nor is there much research. But what there is can be summed up as follows. Identity work is linked to language use. When people move countries, identity work becomes extremely complicated. If you see identity not as a stable, solid state, but as a process and a becoming, then to be ripped out of your known and familiar context into a new and unknown context involves the process of fitting into the population that is heard, that can speak, and perhaps not being there yet, not to speak the language or not to be seen as a traditional and born speaker of the language of the country to which you go can lead to being set apart as opposed to being a part of. It's the whole difference between being a member of the audible and visible majority because audibility and visibility are linked or not being. Who an audible minority is depends entirely on context. An Anglophone may be an audible minority in Quebec, for example. It's all about context, really. You and I can have this conversation in English, and yet I am an audible minority nevertheless. Just sort of to simplify, it might be just those who sound different than the majority of the folks in that community. Yes, but what does it mean to sound different? It's not just about ethnicity. It's not just about nationality. There are many layers to what constitutes audible minority status, physical status, levels of ableness, levels of challenge, gender, ethnicity, yes. 
I, I always speak about ethnicity and race as very subtly and, and unexpectedly connected with being an audible minority. It, it's come out in several news interviews that fifth-generation Canadians of Far Eastern Asian heritage would say that we are always asked how we speak such good English. So what they look like, the visible markers of ethnic or racial identity, connect to how they are heard as well. So it does have many layers attached to to what might construe an audible minority. What are some of the issues that individuals run into when they are outside of the norm? When they're outside the norm, what in that kind of intercultural or co-cultural encounter, one may be rendered invisible as well as inaudible simultaneously. It's not that the two dimensions of being identifiable are separated from each other. One is unable to participate in jokes, for example. Marks me apart as part of the in-group or the out-group, and that has impacts on many other aspects of life and work. And it might play out at the level of unconscious bias. Very few people are willing to admit to themselves their level of prejudice or privilege. It takes a lot of examination and courage to really delve into oneself. And most people, including myself, operate at the level of unconscious bias. So that judgment may happen even without the judge knowing that it's happening. Unconscious bias definitely happens to everyone. And it's always interesting to me when I recognize my own. I don't say that I recognize all of it, but every once in a while that aha moment happens where it's sort of, oh, I did that. So um, what are some of the things that people can do to make people feel more welcome or to um, be aware of their maybe audible minority biases? Well, I would say always that the first step is to examine their own perceptions, not to assume the absence of bias. But it's really essential to begin with a self-examination against privilege and bias. If, for example, I say that, oh, I'm not privileged because I'm a woman of color and I am a visible minority, it doesn't mean that I don't have privilege. I'm in this podcast. I'm doing this conversation in fluent English. I have immense privilege. I have the ability to be heard, I have the ability to speak, I have the space to speak and to be heard. So I have to begin with myself. Once I begin with myself, then the next step is the greater ability to listen carefully and closely to an individual in person in front of you, to engage with the person with honesty and humility, that there's a whole person in front of oneself, not just a color or an accent. That's an excellent point. And I think a lot of people miss that whole whole thing is that there's more than just what somebody is presenting. There's more there's more behind that. One of the things that we talked about, again, in the committee is um, making space for people to be heard. How important is that to this process? I think in every gathering, there will always be that inequality of power and privilege. The people who will speak up are usually the people with the most privilege. They very rarely had to struggle with situations of inaudibility and invisibility. Taking the stage is very natural. For those without, the wings are where they have always been. And the wings are where they will stay unless the person who is moderating the discussion or the conversation, the person who is leading, gives them priority to speak and to be heard. And the question and the dilemma, of course, is that can this be an imposition on those people? Because it's not very comfortable to be called on to speak either. Mm -hmm. It's a balance, really. It's a tricky balance. So, for example, in any classroom, the people who are in the back benches, maybe in the back benches are not really ready to speak. So 
to what extent, if I were the instructor, am I imposing on them by saying, okay, you please, at the back of the room, could you please come forward and speak? It can be very oppressive as well. Yeah, very intimidating for some. Yeah. Very intimidating. I'm not really sure about the best way to do this diplomatically, but there must be a way to make sure that it's not just the usual ones who speak mm-hmm. get to speak. Um, I think this is a very interesting topic and something that needs to be discussed a little bit further. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Yes, I do, actually. Very often the discussions of prejudice, bias, racism focus on adults, but we rarely ask what happens with children who move countries and the impacts on them and their well-being of mind and body. What does it mean, for example, for a refugee child in the classroom? What kind of disruptions of identity and status are we talking about? Immigrant children, for example, when they come and they try to fit with their peers who are Canadians, born and bred, and they cannot, and they're marginalized because of language, audibility and visibility in the classroom or in the playground. What does that mean for them throughout their lives? I think we need to look not just at adults and their experience, but also at children and their experience. It's an excellent, excellent point. I don't think we're going to have any clear-cut answers on this, but it's definitely uh, worth discussing and worth thinking about so that we continue to go down this path of, of understanding. Thank you very much. Thanks so much to Amrita Mishra for taking her time with us. Edmonton's Vital Signs Report identifies community needs so we know where resources are needed. It's also a great teaching tool and a resource for policymakers. Speaking of vital signs, the Social Innovation Institute and McEwen University are using the Vital Signs Report to help inspire new ideas for social projects. On Thursday, September 27th, they will be hosting the 2018 Community Innovation Challenge. So imagine working with a group of strangers to brainstorm new innovative ideas, pitching that idea, and then winning some funding to bring that idea to life. Here's Heather Bray to tell us more. Hello, my name's Heather Braid. I'm the academic coordinator for the McEwen University Social Innovation Institute, and we're excited to be bringing an event called the Community Innovation Challenge to McEwen at the end of September, September 27th. And this event is in partnership with the United Church of Canada's Edge Lab. So maybe we can start by getting you to tell us about what the Community Innovation Challenge is. So the Community Innovation Challenge is a one-time event, so we're having it for about three hours, and anyone from the community can come. So we're hoping to get maybe some high school students, maybe some seniors, some professionals, some students from McEwen. Really, we just want quite a diverse group there. And then we're going to be looking at... Uh, coming up with some solutions to some tricky situations that are facing Edmontonians. So can you walk us a little bit through what the day is going to look like? So it's an evening event from 4 to 7. So you'll arrive and we're going to have some dinner for you. And then we're having a presentation on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So she's going to talk about how those goals can be brought locally to Edmonton. And then we'll break up into teams of people. So we'll have 10 different tables. At each table, there'll be a different topic, which we've pulled from the Vital Signs Report. Just to clarify, so Vital Signs is a document that Edmonton Community Foundation produces every year that uh, compares Edmonton data to national statistics to sort of see how Edmonton is doing in a certain area. 
And our last vital science topic was uh, social inclusion or belonging. Uh, so these groups of folks that are going to be participating, uh, do they come with like their team, quote unquote, or do they get matched up at the actual event so they might not know who they're sitting with and working with? Exactly. Just matched up at the actual event. So you can come with no experience in this whatsoever, with just an interest to maybe help out and do something good in Edmonton, or you could come in with maybe knowing sort of about this process, having done it before. Maybe you have a bit of an idea that you're hoping to suggest either way. And then we will match you up with teams. What is sort of the end goal that they're going to hopefully come up with at the end of the time? So each table will be focused on a specific topic. So they'll actually look at the vital signs report and read the data about that topic. And they'll be led through a process about exploring maybe the root causes of those challenges. And then they'll talk about how to potentially address those challenges. And they'll actually come up with an idea that they're going to pitch at the end of the event. So one example of an idea that came out of a previous community innovation challenge was to provide a training program for hairstylists that work with maybe seniors or cancer patients or potentially other vulnerable populations. So they trained them on how to recognize mental health issues and other signs that they might need support in a certain area. So they trained the hairdressers, they charged a small fee for this, and then they're able to spread this service across their community. And uh, you're also going to be pairing each group with a mentor of sorts. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who these mentors are? Yeah, so the mentor should have some knowledge about the topic area um, set for the table. So that could be through lived experience, or it could be someone who um, has experience in the topic area through their line of work. And then at the end, it reminds me almost of like Dragon's Den, <laughs> kind of. They come up with these great ideas, but uh, there's also an opportunity for some funding to actually put these ideas into action. So at the end, each table will pitch their idea to the group, and then the idea that seems to be the most viable will get some funding, and it's uh, $2,500. Yeah, well, that's sort of interesting because you know these groups of people might not know each other. Uh, they're kind of on the hook to make it go afterward if, if their project is selected. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to chat about that maybe we haven't touched upon? One of the things that is a little bit unique to this Edmonton Community Innovation Challenge is that in addition to focusing on the vital science report, we're connecting that to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And these goals are designed to get the whole world involved in how to become more sustainable. So what we really want to do is how can we make those goals more accessible to Edmonton? Canada just released their report on how well Canadians are doing in supporting the sustainable development goals. And their report was titled, No One Gets Left Behind. And we thought that was a really great parallel to the 2017 Edmonton Vital Signs Report about belonging and social inclusion. Thanks to Heather Braid for telling us about the Community Innovation Challenge. If you'd like to attend, check out socialinnovationchallenge.ca. Of course, we'll have the link in our show notes, along with our 2017 Vital Signs Report. Plus, we'll have the UN Sustainable Development Goals that Heather mentioned, along with the report on how well Canada is doing to meet those goals. There's lots to see in our show notes this week for all of you fellow social stats nerds out there. We don't have any newsy bits to share this week, so that brings us to the end of our show. 
Thanks to all of our guests for sharing their stories with us. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to fill out our listener survey at thewellendowedpodcast.com. We want to know what you think. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, be sure to share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Leaving a review is a big help and we always appreciate your feedback. Thanks for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking and Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.